Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Father, this morning we want that living water. We want the water that satisfies our parched souls that leads us to everlasting life. We need your spirit to do that in us this morning. So we ask that we'd be mindful of what you're doing in this place. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm just not convinced. I'm just not convinced. At this response, awkwardness and uncertainty began to bubble up in my chest. Silence ensued. I didn't know what exactly to say after this or how to keep the conversation going. So I quickly replied, okay, and I pivoted the discussion to something more trivial. So ended my conversation about faith in Jesus with a relative. You know, the conversation felt unsuccessful, a bit awkward, and it left an uncomfortable taste in my mouth. You know, some of you might be able to resonate with this story, having had similar experiences sharing your faith. On this Global Mission Sunday, you might already know of God's plan to spread the gospel to all nations through evangelism. And yet many of us look at the ground uncomfortably when we hear this because we don't feel skilled enough 
We don't feel comfortable enough to participate in this kingdom initiative. You know, rather we feel paralyzed by internal voices that question ventures into conversations about faith. What will I say? What if I say something wrong? What if I can't answer all their questions? What if they're not interested? What if they reject me? This morning I want to reframe the way that we think about and feel about missions and thereby evangelism by looking at our gospel text this morning. You know, John 4 depicts a situation with Jesus that likely felt uncomfortable and awkward for the majority of those that were involved. For some context, Jesus is making his way north to the region of Galilee and he passes through Samaria. He's tired because Jesus is fully human like us. And so he stops for a drink of water at midday and he engages with a Samaritan woman. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to page 888 or listen along with me starting at John 4, verse 7. Let's see how this conversation plays out. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You know, the author John wants his readers to see the irregularity of Jesus' actions here. The words, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, is, is in parentheses in your text. Our author is adding an editorial comment here. He's highlighting the atypicalness of this situation. As a Jew, Jesus is breaking some widely accepted cultural, ethnic, and religious rules in this scene. And he's doing so on two fronts. First with the place, and second with the person. Jesus' conversation with this woman happens in the city of Sychar in Samaria. This is the ancient city of Shechem. This is where actually God first appeared to Abraham in Cana, and it's where Joseph's bones were buried after the nation of Israel departed from Egypt. So this city has a rich history for God's people. And yet Jews have come to avoid the specific region and city. Why? The Samaritans are a people that are an amalgamation of different cultures, ethnicities, and religious beliefs. One commentator describes it like this. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, they took almost all the population captive, exiling them to the Babylonian Empire. All they left behind were the lowest classes of society because they didn't want these lowly regarded people in Babylon. These ones left behind intermarried with either non-Jewish people who came slowly into the region, and the Samaritans thus emerged as an ethnic and religious group. So in layman's terms, the Jews despised the, despised the Samaritans even more than the Gentiles because religiously speaking, they're half-breeds. They've got an eclectic and mongrel faith. This is why it was a common practice for devout religious Jews to actually avoid Samaria. Traveling Jews would intentionally add mileage to their journey to pass around Samaria on their way north. But not Jesus. Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria. Jesus also breaks cultural and gender norms by speaking with a woman 
At that time, it was an accepted practice for religious leaders and teachers not to converse with women in public. And this is why in verse 27, it says, the disciples marveled that he was talking with a woman. This woman isn't a devout, holy prophetess of God. She's societally and sinfully tainted. And we can infer this because the text discloses that this interaction happens at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is noontime, and that's the hottest part of the day in the Middle East. You don't go to get water at the hottest part of the day. On top of that, she's alone. She's not gathering water in the cool of the morning or evening with a group of peers, as would be normal. This is because she likely wants to avoid people. So, Jesus is in a place of outcasts, speaking to an outcast within the group of outcasts. You know, as modern readers, we don't feel the weight of what Jesus is doing here. So to feel this text a bit more, let me draw an American historical comparison. This would be like a white man intentionally entering a segregated African-American community during the Jim Crow era and asking for a bottle of water from a woman on the side of the road. Jesus' actions would have made some people feel both uncomfortable, confused, disconcerted, awkward, and possibly angry. So why does Jesus do this? Why does the text say in verse 3 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria when he could have avoided the whole incident altogether? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to love and elevate those that society had deemed unlovable and disregardable. You know, as we close our Sinners, Scoundrels, and Outcasts series this morning, may I remind you who Jesus has interacted with and transformed. A Jewish tax collector, an unclean, bleeding woman, a powerful Roman centurion, a Gentile Seraphonician, magi from the east, the daughter of a religious leader, and now an outcasted Samaritan woman. All types of people can have a place in God's story. Since the beginning of the Bible with Abraham, God has always planned to expand his covenant family beyond the Jews. Remember Psalm 86.9 from this morning. All the nations you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. God's always planned this right from the beginning. Most of us here are today recipients of that divine prerogative because we aren't Jews. We're Gentiles. And so we're included in the story because of God's plan from the beginning. We are part of the faith faith family by way of an invitation, likely because of the words of another, possibly a parent, a grandparent, friend, neighbor, mentor. And yet many of us still, and I'm saying us because I feel it too, still feel an internal resistance when we hear the call to participate in missions and evangelism. Why is that? Why is that? I think our text offers us a clue, and it has to do with our internal focus. Look with me at the end section of dialogue between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, starting at verse 20. And I want you to notice if there's a repeated word that you see over and over again. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Hope you're able to notice what word was repeated over and over and over again. The word worship. It's used ten times in these four verses. That's significant. Repeated words are directional signposts for textual meaning in the Bible. Jesus had this end in mind as he asked her for a drink of water in the beginning. You know, by discussing worship, Jesus is revealing this woman's true desires and her longings. He's getting at her heart, what she thinks will save her, what she thinks will finally grant her a satisfied and successful life. You know, the fact that Jesus leads her into a discussion about worship teaches us a profound truth. Humans are made for worship. No matter our current situation, our hearts are bent towards this end. You know, it's why church services with confession, with preaching, with singing, with communion are so spiritually uh, rejuvenating. It's why it's rejuvenating, because we're made to do this. A human soul is restless when it's not united with God. And that is what Jesus is revealing amidst the discussion of living water and worship. All people need God's Holy Spirit to truly satisfy them. You know, every other good thing in this world that we turn into an ultimate thing, every good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing will leave us feeling unsatisfied and parched. You know, there's a famous 60-minute interview with Tom Brady from 2005. Many of you may have heard this or seen it. In this candid discussion, quarterback Tom Brady shares, and quote, man, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I would playing football. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? It's got to be more than this. It's got to be more than this. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus reminds us that life is only complete and whole when we're nourished in a relationship with God. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy us over the long haul. This doesn't come by way of legalistic practices or perfect religious form. It's not about where we worship. It's about who we worship. You know, a bigger house won't satisfy. A larger retirement, not a retirement nest egg won't be enough. You won't obtain consistent joy by exchanging your current partner for someone more sensitive or more attractive. You know, Jeremiah 2 verse 13 details human tendency. That's how it goes. God says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
I want to read that again because it's true. God says, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. Rather than worshiping God, mankind tries to save ourselves. We try to satisfy ourselves with the, set, the sweat of our own brow. We reject God because we think we know better. You know, all this cistern digging is just digging our own spiritual graves. You know, coming back to mission and evangelism, I think this cistern idea is why we feel uncomfortable. It's why sometimes we feel awkward and paralyzed amidst missions. We default into our own efforts. We make missions and evangelism about ourselves, about our own understanding, about our own capabilities. You know, we respond a lot like the Samaritan woman after Jesus initiates with her. How is it that? How is it that I am supposed to start a conversation about faith? How am I going to answer all their questions? How am I to do this when it's not my gift? How will this impact the way that they see me? You know, in these brief examples, who's the subject in that? Who have we really made it about? Me, myself, and I. You know, our missional paralysis is a product of our own self-preoccupation. We get tripped up because we get tunnel vision and we look inward. We look upon ourselves for the power. We try to draw water from broken cisterns. We focus on our own fears and abilities, priorities and self-image rather than on Jesus, rather than on the other person. You know, Scripture corrects us by reorienting us to the subject matter. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who offers living water. You know, friends, transformation in the lives of others may occur through you, but it most assuredly does not occur because of you or by you. You know, in, the, in a book by Zach Ashwin entitled Sensing Jesus, Life and Ministry as a Human Being, Zach details a story in seminary where his seminary professor had each student stand up one by one, walk to the front of the class, face the class, and then publicly declare, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. On this World Mission Sunday, hear afresh the good news that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the desires of the nations. And yet we're not off the hook for our role in missions. Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus invites us to bear fruit for the sake of the whole world. You know, God uses his people to bring sinners, scoundrels, scallywags, and outcasts into the fold. So that means you. You have a role. I want you to notice the response of the Samaritan woman in verse 28 after she has a moment of spiritual clarity. She came with a, remember, she came with a water jar. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. God's people are to leave our water jars and to share what God has done in our lives. We are to invite others to come and see a man. Come and see a man. 
1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love that ending qualifier. It's interesting. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is exactly what Jesus does with this woman. Jesus' conversational methods are dripping with compassion, gentleness, respect, and wisdom. You know, this Samaritan woman could be classified as a modern-day skeptic. She's unconvinced of Jesus and some of his claims. She has no issue challenging Jesus' statements and pushing him for answers. It's significant that it's Jesus who initiates this conversation with the woman. He uses normal, everyday situations, the need for human water to draw her into a deeper reality. He piques her curiosity for satisfaction, and he does so with questions. He draws her out, and yet he's in complete control of this conversation. After every conversational progression, he follows up with a concrete truth. All the while, never shaming, berating, or making her feel guilty. He's an expert. He masterfully transitions her from thinking just about physical realities of the world and pushes her into a discussion of deeper, more meaningful realities of life. He invites her authentic self as he pushes her to evaluate her heart motives, desires, and longings. You know, He helps her to realize she doesn't need a certain husband. She doesn't need a right temple or worship space. Jesus gets her to recognize that she's been waiting for him and him alone. alone. You know, and a gem of this conversation is that it isn't rushed. It takes time for her to get there. You know, Jesus is okay with that. He moves her along slowly and gently because she's not a product. She's a person. You know, Jesus treats us today with that same compassion, gentleness, and respect. He doesn't rush our transformation. He doesn't shame or guilt us, nor does he do this with others. His presence and way of operating is often a slow drip of life-altering mercy. God's not in a hurry for an end product. He cares about the process. You know, so this morning, if you're what I would classify as in the family of Holy Trinity, I challenge you to actively think about what it looks like to participate in missions. As you participate in the mission of God, extend extend that same gentleness and respect to yourself and others. Remember, it's about Jesus and the other person, not you. So ask good questions. Bring in truth. Use daily situations. It doesn't have to be efficient or forceful. You can make mistakes. You can try and fail because it's not all on your shoulders. You know, in fact, when it comes to missions and evangelism, God might be trying to do something in you more than he's actually trying to do through you. Now, this morning, if you resonate with my first words, I'm not convinced, I'd like to speak to you now. If you're skeptical about this whole God thing, I want you to know your questions are okay. I encourage you to voice those questions, those thoughts with a conversation partner. You can take your time on this journey. 
but please know you have an invitation to the party. You know, there's nothing in your past that precludes you from attending, and it's worth it. It's worth it to come and see. Come see a man who has transformed my anxiety and depression. Come see a man who's healed some of my insecurities and my feelings of inferiority. Come see a man who's given a sense of purpose and peacefulness in my life. My life is by no means perfect, but it's a whole lot better than when I tried to go it without him. And if he did this in me, I know he can do something in you. On this World Mission Sunday for all in attendance, I close by heralding the beginning of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to God and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to God, and hear that your soul may live. Amen.